0: reading short and deep hi i'm jesse and i'm eric and today we're reading short and deep and all the earth a grave by cc McCap. uh this is first published in galaxy uh magazine december 1963 and um i'm going to an attempt a uh a little summary of what the story is and about. And basically the plot is um, uh, due to a calculating error in a calculating machine, the budget for a coffin manufacturer um, was increased by uh, double what the uh, advertiser had asked for and about 100 times what would be reasonable. This causes the uh, fad for coffins to become extremely popular uh, in the Christmas season. Um, People are buying coffins left and right, and um, the coffin manufacturers um, work day and night to provide them. Retailers get into the business, Um, filling their spaces that used to be filled with car showrooms would now be filled with coffin showrooms. Uh, Even service centers like gas stations start selling coffins. Um, Soon, people are requiring to move their coffins to special coffin ports in their houses, and it becomes sort of natural to start using your coffins. The advertising is so powerful that people just sort of lay down in their coffins and die Uh, the coffins um, continue to be manufactured right up until the end when the last man on earth finds a nice comfortable coffin uh, lays down in it and nicely dies but turns out he's not the last man on earth there is one left
1: and that's my summary (laughs) how did you like it well, it was non-judgmental. I, I must take my hat off to you okay. for that. It's not imposing your ideology on nope. it at all. No. Nope. Uh, you recommended this to me, I um, and I must say that I found it a delightful satire. I'm <laughs> yes. really glad that you uh, that you recommended it. Uh, what attracted you to the story to begin with?
0: Uh, I found it on Librivox. Um... Uh, which is uh, free audiobooks made of public domain stories. Um, I would go through their collections, and I, I just, I was trying everything, and I found this one, and I, I was like, oh, I, I, this is the. They made a lot of these stories in the fifties and the sixties, especially the early sixties and the late fifties. Um, and this is the sort of an exemplar of these kind of stories, the kind of joke science fiction stories. Um, And yet, when I was looking at it, just again for the show, I noticed there's not a lot of science fiction in it. It's mostly just a joke. And yet, um, there are the touches that indicate that it was published in a science fiction magazine. And it's classified as science fiction by pretty much everybody. Um, But I I think there's an argument to be made that it could be published in any kind of magazine, uh, with maybe just one or two word changes, or maybe no changes at all.
1: Yeah, what makes it science fiction is, is interesting to me in a lot of ways. Uh, if one, <laughs> so the, the difference in our ages is, uh, is perhaps relevant here. This is a 1963 story. So I was already in college. You were not. (laughs) No, I wasn't existing yet. Right. So here are some of the things that I remember from this era that seemed to me relevant. In 1958, Avram Davidson um, published a story called Or All the Seas with Oysters. Okay. Which won the Hugo Award in 1958. Actually, I guess he published it in 57. Anyway, it won the 1958 Yugo for the best short story of the year or all the seas with oysters. It's a uh, really nifty story in which uh, two brothers um, – well, they, they do bicycle repair. I, I think there's some hint involved here about, uh, maybe remembering the Wright brothers. Um, anyway, they begin to notice that, uh, or maybe it's just one guy who does bicycle repair. Anyway, uh, I haven't read it in a long time. He begins to notice that different parts don't work and then some parts disappear and other parts do appear. And anyway, it's, it's a very funny story. Um, uh, about sort of the revolt of the machines that is you feel like they're revolting against you but of course they're not they're just machines until he comes up with this idea that, do you notice do you notice that everybody seems to have a drawer that has more and more and more pens that don't work <laughs> and and there's also these hangers the wire hangers in the closet that just keep accumulating and one of the brothers, I guess, comes up with this idea that the the pens are the larval stage of the hangers <laughs> and these things are reproducing and they're, they're going to take over the world. He, he comes up with this idea. Um, he thinks of it. And then the viewpoint switches to that of his brother who comes to his uh, to see him and can't find him and opens the closet and there he is dead hanging by a hanger. <laughs> uh, so you know and all or all the seas with oysters that that line gets explained in the story. I won't tell you more. It's a darn good story, a Hugo winner, and that's 1958. So. In that story, you see technology has turned against us and led to uh, controlling us and, if need be, killing us. I think one of the uh, the points of and all the earth a grave might well be not only that CC uh, Macap, as, as you said, uh, it's a uh, as you know, it's a pseudonym mm-hmm. um, that it's not just about um, consumerism, which it is. Um, It's also about how technology may be out to get us. It may well be that um, this bookkeeping machine slipped a claw. It says the very first line, it all began when the new bookkeeping machine of a large Midwestern coffin manufacturer slipped a cog or blew a transistor or something. And it's never explained why it is that this brand new machine screwed up and it didn't screw up across the board. It just screwed up in the budget for the advertising department. And that sets in in, uh, motion all that follows. You can't help but wonder, given the the reference to uh, Davidson's story, Mm. if if maybe there's a a piece of this that say, well, you know, competition makes us do all kinds of terrible things. Uh, Consumerism has its problems. But maybe technology is what's making it happen. Once, once you get that idea in your mind, mm. you begin mm. to realize that what our advertising manager does, and that's all the only name he gets. Everybody in this story is known, except one guy has a nickname, but we don't know if it's got to do with his real name, Sarcophagus Sam. Everybody in this story who is named at all is named only by his role. Mm. You know, advertising manager, wife, sales manager, president, you know, only by a role, no names, as if. We are all cogs in this narrative. So, and I'm not sure. Check my math on this, uh, Jesse. Mm-hmm. The advertising manager. It's the the machine has gone kablooey, and turns out this budget. And they the figures for this budget. They showed. I'm reading now. They showed the budget for his own department as exactly 100 times what he'd been expecting. That is to say. Fifty times what he'd put in for, right. Okay, now here's what I'm thinking. He didn't say it doesn't say it showed the increase for his department. It showed the budget for his department, right? Mm-hmm. So if if let us say just for the sake of keeping the math straight, let's say that the budget for the department were a thousand dollars for the And this gave him a hundred times what he'd been expecting. So we have to ask, well, what had he been expecting? Well, it turns out that it's 50 times what he would put in for. So if he had a budget of $1,000 and put in to double his budget to Mm $2,000, 50 times more than that would be $100,000. Right. So if he put in a budget of $2,000 and he got 100 times it, Excuse me, he got um, 50 times it. That would be Mm 100,000, which would be 100 times what he had been expecting, which would have been the original thousand. In other words, if I'm doing the simultaneous equations correctly, he didn't expect to get an increase at all. He just put in for an increase and did not expect to get it. Right. So human beings were not going to give him an increased advertising budget. Right. Right he only got any increase at all because the the new bookkeeping machine chose to give it to him so what he does when he suddenly sees for the first time ever he's got this huge advertising budget he immediately goes to new york why new york because mm-hmm. new york is where madison avenue is mm-hmm. and he's gone right and they come up with with posters yes but what turns out to be more important than the printing press first we get posters but then we get radio and then we get television in other words we go through a chain of technological development historically to spread the word about how you have to have these wonderful coffins i can't help but wonder if there isn't an awful lot going on here about technology Mm -hmm. because at the end when we see that prospector come down from the hills um, this is really terrific. So everybody has apparently died. <laughs> and then the prospector comes down from the hills. Um, the old prospector in his burrow had been in the mountains for so long, the buzzard had concluded that they didn't know how to die. Well, that buzzard is a little bit like uh, the buzzards in A Canticle for Leibowitz. They are sort of inverse versions of the whole, the Holy Ghost. hmm because in fact this this prospector doesn't know how to die. The prospector, whose name was Adams. Yeah. And that's the first character who gets a real name. Trudged behind his burrow. I think his placement is is relevant. Toward the buildings that shimmered in the heat, humming to himself now and then, or addressing some remark to the beast. Then he reached the outskirts of Denver. When he reached it, he realized something was amiss. He stood and gazed at this quiet scene. Nothing moved except some skinny pack rats and a few sparrows foraging for grain among the unburied coffins. Unburied because... There are no <laughs> occupants left or anyone to bury them. Tarnation, he said to the borough, which, of <laughs> course, is a version of damnation. Eternal damnation, in fact. Excellent. Martians? Now, how does this this <laughs> prospector know about Martians? Anyway, a half-buried, so in the, so not... Fully, So we've got unburied coffins. We've got all those buried coffins. And in between, we have another example of the products of technology. A half-buried piece of newspaper fluttered in the breeze. He walked forward slowly and picked it up. It told him enough so that he understood. They're gone, Evie, he said to the borough, all gone. So it's Adams and Evie Mm -hmm. who are now coming into Denver. He put his arm affectionately around her neck. I reckon it's up to you and me. Again, again. <laughs> so whatever it is, it's up to they're up. To, it's up to them. They've done it before. We got to start all over. He said. Ba- he stood back and gazed at her with mild reproach. <laughs> I sure hope they don't favor your side of the house so much this time. <laughs> and that's a button means, ending, right? Yeah. Uh, beg your pardon. It's that button ending. Yep, it's terrific. So what he's saying is. You know, humanity began out of bestiality, (laughs) that Adam and Eve were actually a man and an ass. And what Adam is hoping is this time they won't be as much asses as they clearly were this, as they clearly just were, Mm -hmm. so that they led to their own death. Um, Now, that's that's a nice little twist on what's going on. So what makes us asses? It seems to me what makes us asses is Obviously consumerism, yep. but that consumerism is abetted by the technology we invent and enthusiastically use. As soon as the advertising manager gets his hands on this error, he doesn't wait to have it get corrected. He runs to New York to put it to use. I, I should point out that um, in in Galaxy, the editorial tagline for this, is there's nothing wrong with dying, it just hasn't ever had the proper sales pitch. Yep. Now this is 1963, so another thing from my my youth, Jesse, but but your pre-birth, um, there is a a book called The Hidden Persuaders, mm-hmm. by a nam, man named Vance Packard. It sold over a million copies. It's a 1957 book that was. An enormously powerful, uh, very controversial, very disturbing expose of what Madison Avenue does. That is what the advertising industry does to get us to buy things. It talked about such things as planned obsolescence. Yep. It talked about how advertisements are staged to make us want to do what it is that the, the advertiser wants us to do and so on. It talks about focus groups. Uh, it's, I, and I remember reading it at the time. Um, it, it really shocked lots of people. Um, that's 1957. This is 1963. McApp, I think, has written a book, has written a story that is expecting us to understand just how powerful the mechanism, the technology of advertising can be. I I should point out that uh, McCap, who I'd never encountered before, um, wrote a novel called Omaha Abides, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: which, judging from the description of it that I read, looks like it is in some sense resonant with George R. Stewart's very famous 1948 novel Earth Abides. Mm -hmm. Um, It looks like McCap, like that. That, that vulture at the end of the story, McCap really likes to make use of other people's ideas. <laughs> uh, but I, I'm not saying that, that that he's a parasite because this story actually is a terrific satire, and it's of an age where satire of um, advertising was quite common. You think of the great books in the 50s by Paul and Cornbluth, like the Space Merchants. Right. Uh, You know, and there's a reference here. I dreamt I was caught dead without my virgin form casket. (laughs) You can look up for those of you who are too young to remember it. You can look up. I dreamed I was blank in my maiden form bra. Mm -hmm. It was one of the most successful, longest running advertising campaigns in the history of American business. And it's being used here. So again and again and again, we see that advertising is but another technology and that consumerism is is what drives the technology rather than the other way around. We see the, the, the technology of the newspaper, the radio, the television, the jingle. In fact, the prospector is coming down into the hills, as far as we can tell, with nothing. He's just walked back out of the mountains. Um, it really. uh It really does show what kinds of asses we are. Of course, it's a bizarre exaggeration. Uh, I can't imagine anybody would want to have several coffins so that when he came close to death, he could choose among them (laughs) the way we're told people do here. But uh, okay, it's exaggerated. So are caricatures and farce. And that's what this does, and it does it well. Let me give you one example of the style.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The advertising manager who had put the thing over had been fighting with all the formidable weapons of his breed to make his plant managers build up a stockpile. See, they can't do it because they just the, the sales demand is too high. They had, but it went like a toupee in a wind tunnel. <laughs> and I started thinking about that line. What a great simile. It went like the, the stockpile went like a toupee in a wind tunnel. Well, what's a toupee? It's artificial hair. Yep. It's right. And what's a wind tunnel? It's artificial wind. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not like it went like a hairdo in a hurricane, right? It went like a toupee in a wind tunnel running all through this story is the idea that we have created our world technologically and we are being controlled by the technology that we created. Um, and I think that as exaggerated and farcical as it is, told with this kind of resonant wit, it's a heck of a good story.
0: It is. Um, there's uh, there's so many almost laugh out loud, if not smirking broadly lines in it that I, I, I just am amused every time I read it. I've read it probably a dozen times now. Um, wow. Which is, I use it with my students often and uh, it's, it's, it's just, it's got a lot of, uh, I mean, it's, it's incredibly dated for when it is, right? It's, it's, it's about its period. And I like that word you used, um, you, you mentioned the word stockpile literally in the story. Um, one of the, uh, one of the lines, um, this is after the Christmas uh, boom, right? Uh, then, late in January his new campaign came down like a hundred (laughs) megatonner. So, in the background of this story, it's not just, you know, aren't we foolish consumers? It's also like, we are manufacturing our own destruction. Uh, The nukes that the United States is building, and that China is building, and that Russia is building, um, everybody gets in on the act, pretty much, right? Even the countries that you know, are, are outside of the two blocks, the main blocks, and then there's a the neutral block. Everybody sort of falls sway to this, this problem. And <laughs> it, it's, it's a combination of fads and trends and uh, sort of just, you know, we're manufacturing the thing that will kill us. Right? If, it's, if it's not cars that pollute the atmosphere, it's nukes that destroy the, the planet. Or as uh, Adam says at the end, right, Martians? Is that who killed everybody, took everybody away, <laughs> made the Earth a grave, and all the Earth a grave? Um, the first ad, which is terrific, um, is a poster, and it describes <laughs> the poster beautifully. <laughs> a toothy and tooth, toothsome young woman leaned over a coffin she'd been unwrapping. She smiled as if she'd just received overtures of matrimony from an 80-year-old billionaire. <laughs> there was a Christmas tree in the background, and the coffin was appropriately wrapped. So was she. She looked as if she had just gotten out of bed or were ready to get into it. And what I love about this description is that this is actually how they construct ads, right? If you if you like, are doing a poster trying to sell something... You have to get an attractive person to smile, be delighted with it, um, and give all the cues to let everybody know, even if they don't notice uh, consciously, what's going on. That Christmas tree is there to indicate that this is a Christmas present. The fact that she's smiling so broadly means that apparently coffins are great gifts. It will make your, your sweetie uh, very happy. In fact, uh, she'd be so happy she'd be ready to have sex with you immediately <laughs> upon receiving it, right? Yeah. So the the way that description is gone, that's actually the kind of plan they're going for. We're going to have this in the frame, right? And all the other arguments, uh, two of the other sections of the economy uh, or the other sections of the market right the the unmarried women the old married man um even the beatniks get in on the act right um right. The, the the those uh, non-conformists well they conform in their own special way right the beatniks who had their own coffins and this is like a very specific kind of attack that's hilarious Moldy, scroungy, with lids, without lids. Since the beatniks insisted on being seen, <laughs> right. placed their boxes on the Grant Avenue in San Francisco. They died with highly intellectual expressions, and eventually were washed by the gentle rain. Now, uh, McCap was actually a person who lived in San Francisco, so uh, he's he's making some sp- very specific poking, proddings. But we can see this is this is the beatnik sort of stereotype um in in the broadest brush strokes this is the same kind of stuff we get today with all millennials you know <laughs> there with their avocado toast or whatever it is there's th- that style of of media um just sort of manufacturing easy handles to put on everything and that's exactly what these coffins have easy handles to carry you right to where you're going right um and- in I fact, love I love this story for those little touches as well as the uh, the the button ending. Sorry, continue.
1: Right, I, one of the it's very clever writing in many ways. Um, it, as the population dwindles, there won't wouldn't be anybody to carry you um, to to the grave. That's why as we get to the end of the story, we come into a a period when the The coffins have been automated. Mm -hmm. That's why the, the buzzard isn't able to get into the coffin, because that last man or the next to last man lies down and the coffin covers him itself. It closes itself. So, you know, we have let the technology take control over us. It's only the man Adams who has never actually been in the technological realm that is able to survive. Uh, This this uh, smart thinking, you know, you you made reference to the hundred megatonner. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: I think most modern readers, I mean, people say, you know, 40 or under um, would just understand it um, as one hell of a big bomb. But people my age, if they have long memories, know something else. That is, nowadays we don't have one hundred megaton bombs. We don't even have fifty megaton bombs. We have much smaller bombs because we use multiply uh, targeting reentry vehicles, nerves. Mm-hmm. So we have one missile go up and it may break into six independent reentry vehicles. So the missile may be carrying, say, thirty ton megatons worth of destruction. But it's carrying it in six different m- bombs, each of five megatons each. That, that's that's a lot of that's a lot of destruction, mm-hmm. right? I mean, to minimize it, but it's nothing near 100 megatons, which is why people of my age re- may remember that the day before Halloween, October 30th, 1961, the Soviet Union tested something which came to be known as Tsar Bomba the emperor bomb. It was 50 megatons and it was the biggest throw weight bomb. That was the biggest destructive bomb, single destructive bomb in the history of the world. The Soviet union never test fired another 50 megaton bomb. The United States and China never have had 50 megaton bombs. It is the single biggest bomb ever. Notice The reality was 50 megatons in the story. It was a campaign like a hundred megatonner. Well, the budget he got was a hundred times what he expected, which was because he had but 50 times what he had asked for that 50 and 100 get reproduced again in the size of this simile came down like a hundred megatonner. This writer is really clever, at tying all these things together. And indeed, he seems to be suggesting that our miscalculation is what's going to get us killed. Mm-hmm. Of course, he's laughing about it, right? Neither must one overlook the singing commercials. Possibly the catchiest of these, a really cute little thing, was achieved by jazzing up the funeral march. You know, at the point I read those li- that line, I sort of stopped. The, the funeral march. Mo- oh, Chopin. Oh yes. Da 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 How do you jazz that up? Da 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 da. You know, he's got us doing it. Mm-hmm. I, I think this is. It's a cautionary tale. It it pokes at some easy targets. But the reality in 1963, as the reference to other works that are inherent in this story makes clear, these targets, easy though they may be, deserve to have fun poked at them, and McCap does it really well. But there's always more to say.
0: And remember... You can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for reading short and deep.